0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Four Year Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Welcome to the April 24th, 2023 twenty three, Four Year Benefit radio show. I am Bob Lines and we have a guest. Guest is Joel Kundick, fellow seminar presenter, certified financial planner, and all-around good guy. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Bob. Great to
0: be with you today. Well, it's it's good here. I'm going to take notes as as usual, and um, we're going to, you know, this topic is preparing for the loss of a parent, spouse, or other family member, and. What you're gonna do, and hopefully I'll ask questions, is uh, we'll talk about what to do after the sudden death of a spouse, parent, or their family member. And we'll also talk about that as as it involves finances. So we have a a lot of um, stuff on the plate. So where do we start, boss?
1: Well, I I was with you last year to talk about taxes, Bob, and this year I'm talking about another tough subject. These are not as fun as kind of dreaming about what I'd like to do in retirement or, you know, what's next, what's my next chapter of life. But it's a really important topic uh, that, that I think a lot of people want to kind of skate by. This is something we don't want to put a lot of thought to. But uh, over the last few years, I, I have dealt with the loss of both of my step parents. So helping my father and my mother navigate uh, the, 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 the months after that and figuring out what went well and what didn't go well and what could we have done different. And you know, this is something I do with pro- professionally with clients as well. I'm working with a couple of widows right now. So it's a tender topic and one that I think needs more attention. So I, I'm glad that we're talking about it today.
0: So uh, w- when you uh, work with a client, uh, is there is there a list of the minimal amount of paper that uh, one should have before they talk to you?
1: yeah i I think so you know this is a topic you don't necessarily need a professional to guide you through a professional can certainly be helpful an outside set of ears uh, and eyes uh to run you through some scenarios and questions about have you thought about this have you thought about you know what to do in this regard but but really when you're sitting down together i i I mean i'm going to think about this two ways as you said bob today we're going to talk to those who are contemplating what would i do if what can I do now to be prepared, right? For if, if one of us were to be gone or, or a parent or what what have you. The other set of questions, there, there are going to be listeners today who are in this situation and we'll go through kind of like a triage. Here's the what we have to do now, what we should think about later. So let's talk first to that set of people who are contemplating what if, you know, what would I do? And, and generally, I, I don't want to uh, overgeneralize here, but generally there tends to be one of the two spouses who, uh handles all of the paperwork all right it could be a different spouse that ha- than what handles all the finances so if it's divided that way both people can be learning in this process but let's say let's deal first with a situation where we've got one person who handles all of the paperwork and all of the finances the the real difficulty of that situation is you're contemplating what if is if that spouse were to be gone does the surviving spouse know where everything is to be able to handle that kind of a situation, all right. And and the, 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 the first time I dealt with this in greatest intimacy was when I was working for a small financial planning firm about, oh, it's gonna be about 15 years ago, where the president of the practice, there were 10 employees, but the president of the practice had a major heart attack and was unconscious for eight days. And I was a personal family uh, friend uh, uh, as well. So I was helping his wife gather together important financial documents. And lo and behold, not everything was right where you think it might've been, right? And, and, And so here's where we're starting. We're starting by saying, all right, let's do a stress test. If I were gone and I'm the one who's handling the finances, spouse, do you know where to find everything? And you can do the same exercise for a parent. If you're worried about a parent potentially dying and you don't know where anything is, you can say to the parent, hey, I'd like to be involved in a little bit of a test here. If you were gone, could I find everything that I need to, to manage your estate?
0: Okay, and what what do you find, is there a common item, a common set of papers that are oftentimes overlooked before meeting with you?
1: Yeah, so, well, there is a punch list certainly of what I want to see in one place. And you can have your own methodology for this you know, it can be a single place in the house, a couple places in the house. It can be on a computer. There's a lot of people that have gone all electronic these days. Whatever it is, it has to be in a format that's accessible to both spouses. All right. So what is the list? This, the list starts with wills. Obviously, that 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 is the starting place when someone passes away. We want to know where the wills are. All right. Uh, we also want to know, I mean, in the in the months prior to that, potentially there will be need of a power of attorney for health care or finances that should be with the will all right it should be executed properly it should be standing and you should know who acts on your behalf if something's wrong if you're not well but then after the wills what else do they need well we need insurance policy documents any life insurance policies long-term care policies that you may have should be in a consolidated place with account numbers and phone numbers of who to call right so that should be in a place. Then we go to financial statements, bank statements, credit card statements, and investment statements. Those should all be consolidated into one place. It would be fine if, if the, the, the person were to say, hey, yeah, we don't have a, a filing drawer at home with all that, we do that all with logins, great. Does your spouse have every one of those usernames and passwords so that they would be able to access the accounts if you could not?
0: How how difficult is it to find somebody? In other words, just like you said, if somebody doesn't know where the paperwork and whatnot is, who do they turn to? I'm I'm yep. not going to be self-serving. I doubt it's the accountant, but the accountant would play in there. And imagine the attorney comes first.
1: The attorney can come first. Hopefully the attorney has gathered a list of financial assets as part of the estate planning process. And you could turn to that set. Obviously, if there's a financial advisor. Hopefully that financial advisor has all that information captured. That's one of their critical roles. Uh, and the other place I would go is, yes, the CPI, go to the last year's tax return because we can see a lot of stuff on there. We can see interest that has been paid from bank accounts if it's high enough. We can see dividends and, and realized gains from investment accounts that appear on there. That is the starting place for gathering information. The next place i go is probably the bank statement itself. Right. what am i receiving into the bank account where is that stuff coming from that's another place where i'm going to be able to spot any obligations bills that are being paid so uh, utilities uh credit card companies that are involved uh loans those are all going to show up those monthly payments are going to show up in that bank statement so there is some sleuthing you can do if you don't know and we'll get to that later on with someone who going going through the circumstance but the ideal thing is when both spouses are well or a parent and child are well that we have a financial conversation in which the person who doesn't know where the stuff is figures it out and so that way the person who does know where the stuff is watches them that go through that and typically they learn a lot (laughs) in that process they thought they had everything in one place they thought they had it all organized but when the other spouse goes to try and gather it all together you learn where the stress points are. You learn where things aren't really lining up, right? Oh, I didn't know. What what about this account? I don't see a username and password for that. Great. Oh, what about? Okay, a lot of people are doing usernames and passwords in a in a, a an online. Uh, you know, you have a tool on your computer that's like a secure password store. Well, does the spouse have the the the, the login and password for that? Because that would be really important, right? Because if you're keeping everything inside there and you've got really strange passwords, the other spouse needs most of all access to that. And then we go to important contact information. Who's the attorney? Who's the accountant? Who's the financial advisor? There should be contact information for all of those individuals kept current.
0: So how do some people are going to be better at this than others, like anything else. Uh, But what do you find where you feel the, the client you know is reasonably uh, aware of uh, finances and the like where do you take that person or you know i could turn it around and say what a, what about the person do not have a clue what anything is but l- let's not go there let's go there that uh go and how do you work with somebody that maybe doesn't have everything that they need do you give them a list of the things that you'd like to work with uh in the first or the second meeting
1: yeah, I do have a list, and 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 I think that is an important thing. If you know our listeners to today can Google something like that, right? Financial checklist when someone passes away. There will be options out there, right? But I yes, I do use about a ten-page checklist with my clients. I send out to them, you know, to where they can note all that stuff. Where the funeral is supposed to be, what their wishes are, where the uh, insurance policies are, you know, who to contact about these questions. That you know that yes, you can get a a document organizer that helps you navigate that process. For those who are already feeling like, yeah, we kind of got this under control, the next place I'd probably go is, all right, now we know where everything is, but do we know what would change? So now we have to look at, are there any expenses that are going to change if one of the spouses is gone? Are there any income sources that are going to be different or are going to go away? And have we planned for those things to take place, right? And, right. and, and the most critical thing I see that, that, that people will miss, and it's and, and it's gonna, it's, maybe you're not going to think of this, but it's that you don't have a big enough bank account balance to be able to handle a few months in which everything is in flux, turmoil. We have a funeral to pay for. Everybody's stressed out. We have financial uh, accounts that sometimes get locked up or it takes time to get access to or an insurance policy that doesn't pay out right away? Is there enough liquidity in the bank account accessible to the surviving spouse that they're going to be able to live for a few months and cover the funeral expenses without worrying about all this other stuff?
0: So when when dealing uh, with a couple that, that you don't know, you've been referred to to um, to them, them to you, um, what do you find that you, you think gee i would think somebody knows that now this is no disrespect it's you know we all know what we know and we hope to know something about what we know (laughs) so um,
1: yeah well there's oftentimes here's what i I, i've noticed in working with uh family and i i was referencing this earlier there tends to be a financial spouse and a non-financial spouse and i and when i'm sitting down with a family i don't like to just be sitting down with the financial spouse they're certainly the one who's more comfortable having financial conversation but if there's anyone who needs to get engaged in the overall process more and i'm not saying the detail, they don't need to be intimately in the day-to-day and deciding what accounts to put where but they need to be aware of the process and where they would go if it's the non-financial spouse that's what i will be surprised at oftentimes that only one spouse sits down to meet with me, and it's the one who's engaged financially, and they don't show up with the other spouse, right? Or the, the 85-year-old widow comes to my office but doesn't have the family member who's going to be involved in financial decisions with them sit down with us, too, to be an extra resource. These are the things that are really important, that we do this as a team, that we're not doing this on our own.
0: Do you find find sometimes that um, the person doesn't want the family members in there, Uh, not because they don't like the family members, but, you know, X is going to get Y and A is going to get B. And yeah, there's
1: multiple reasons that would happen, Bob. I mean, what the intergenerational question, this is really interesting. You know, if I'm dealing with clients in their eighties, even late seventies, nineties, certainly, generationally you didn't talk about money that was not something that you did it was if, if a if an adult child asked a parent about that they'd say they they would internally feel like you're trying to get at my assets you're trying to get this money this is my money this isn't your money when really oftentimes what the adult child is asking to do is just to find out hey what's happening here are you covered do you need help how can I assist here And and so, yes, opening conversation between generations is helpful. The other thing is oftentimes the financial spouse in a marriage relationship does not want to be questioned about the way that they are managing finances, right? They want that to be their domain. They don't really want questions from the non-financial spouse. That's another area we have to open things up a little bit more, right? I've seen situations in which a, a spouse passed away and they were managing very complex financial strategies they were engaged in puts and calls on options they were in they had they had a, a company stock that they were navigating options and restricted stock that they were being given that they were doing things with or they were investing in limited partnerships these things that were very comfortable for them are very uncomfortable for their non financial spouse and also difficult to unwind so when we get later on to that what do you need to do right away uh p- part of this conversation that is going to be one thing that really matters that if you have a financial spouse that is, ga- is engaged in complex strategies how easy are those to unwind and how critical are they to somebody who's doing day trading and who happens to end up having their position stay invested for two months until the family can look at it that could be a big problem but so we need to be oriented more toward hey if something happened to me Is this all set up in a way that someone could take over? How easy is the the baton handoff?
0: Very good. I'm going to take the baton, if you don't mind, for a nanosecond. And we'll listen to what the sponsor of the show, WEPA, can do for the listeners.
2: Times have changed, but WEPA's mission remains the same. To promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. WEPA offers group term life insurance to civilian federal employees with up to 1.5 million in coverage, regardless of salary. As a WEPA member, you can access exclusive rates and benefits not available to the general public. How does this compare to FEGLI? Unlike Fegley, WEPA's coverage amounts are not capped by your salary. WEPA will cover your family as well. For your children, WEPA offers double the benefits that FEGLI offers. And for your spouse, WAPA offers 20 times more coverage than Fegley. 20 times more coverage. WAPA's coverage is also portable if you decide to leave the federal government or retire. You can even supplement or replace your existing policy. See how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today.
0: Welcome back to For Your Benefit. It's April 24, 2023. Uh-huh. Guest host today, Joel Kundick, certified financial planner, has been teaching us things that we should have already known, but we don't. Um, and we have, and uh, we have more to learn. Andrew keeps it on an even keel, and I, I just ask questions. All righty, so give me some more questions.
1: Well, I was thinking over the break here, Bob. One of the advantages of that break is I can kind of think. All right, what, what have I missed? And, and there's just a couple other things that I feel like we should cover for uh, situations in which we're running a stress test in advance, right? Uh, One of them is really relevant to our federal clients, uh, federal listeners, is the power of attorney document, all right? The power of attorney document is a really important document if someone becomes incapacitated, not dies. If someone has died, now we've got an executor in place and there's a will that kicks in. But if someone's incapacitated, and something needs to happen with their investment accounts. There needs to be a power of attorney in place. Specifically for the TSP, that document, that power of attorney needs to list that the power of attorney is permitted to act on retirement accounts and retirement plans. If it does not list that specifically, oftentimes the the, the retirement plan or or the IRA uh, custodian is going to say, Hey, we're not going to act on that because the power of attorney doesn't specify that you can take action on this kind of account see those kinds of iras and 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 retirement plans are governed by erisa which has its own complexities and its own wonderful elements one of the hurdles that i think is a good hurdle is saying is to make it difficult for someone to act on someone else's behalf without documentation that authorizes it so you want to have a power of attorney document yes but you want to make sure that that power of attorney allows someone to act on an ira or a retirement plan this is particularly important when um, families have chosen to kind of draft a set of estate documents with a generalized attorney or with uh, a a document builder that they found online right i typically recommend that families go to an estate attorney who is qualified in the state that they live in and is up to date on all the aspects of asset transition Because they're going to know to include that kind of language, someone who's more of a general attorney who's just drafting a power of attorney because they know how to do it may miss out on those kinds of elements so that's that's one component. The other component that I would say is really important for a couple to look through about what would change this is less important when it's a parent child right. But if it's a if it's a couple looking at this, we need to know what is going to happen to the income sources, so if we're in our working years is there some kind of survivorship uh, benefit that is going to be paid to us from the employer right is there some is there something that's going to continue income how about if i'm in the retirement years what will happen to my social security payment what is going to happen to my federal annuity payment did i elect the survivorship option did i not are there other pensions that are paying out and if there are how does that work for a survivor this is really important and, and it's kind of saying the stress test doesn't need to just be done one way. It needs to be done both ways. It needs to be one spouse saying, all right, I'm gone. What do you get? And then the other space saying I'm gone. What do you get? Because you can find holes. I'll give an example here. If, if I've got a couple that I'm working with who uh, one was a federal employee and one was a stay at home spouse. All right. In that situation, the federal employee is gonna get a large federal annuity. If they were a lifetime, a, a career federal employee, right? They're gonna get a large annuity from the federal government. And they're also gonna get a meaningful social security benefit. The spouse will be eligible for a spousal benefit on that social security, meaning half of the worker benefit. So while both spouses are living, we have two social security payments and a large federal annuity payment. Now, if the, if the stay at home spouse passes away first, all that is lost is the half a, a, a worker benefit of Social Security that they were receiving. That's it. So in that sense, the surviving spouse is, actually gets a larger payment at that point because they don't have to have the discount from their federal annuity anymore for the survivorship portion, right? So they're actually going to be just fine. But let's reverse it. Let's say it was the worker who dies first. Now, the federal annuity cuts in half. The Social Security, the spouse loses their their, their, their uh, spousal benefit. They jump to the worker benefit. So the short way of saying that is Social Security goes down by a third. Federal annuity, Federal annuity payments go down by half. And that's a big difference on income to the surviving spouse. So I just want people to think about that. Hey, what would happen to income if one of us passed away first? And is the portfolio built in a way that we could sustain that kind of shock? to to the family finances.
0: Okay, what about the individual that doesn't have a family or a spouse, excuse me, Um, but you know everybody's got a family uh, and some we might like better than others and and the family. But as far as then the same thing, there's a will required, but this is the the sole person. Um, Do you find that the individual has a better knowledge of what they want than the non?
1: They tend to. Yeah. So somebody's been doing this on their own for a number of years. They tend to have a good idea of what they want. Actually, you know, what, what one of the most difficult things about portfolio construction and financial planning is that element of two spouses with different goals, dreams, desires, and trying to find compromise between those two. The, 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 the one person living on their own tends to have an easier time determining what do I want to do? And how do I want this allocated without the mix of kind of what do, what compromises do we need to make between the two of us? The difference for the person living on their own tends to be that sense of aloneness and the way that that reflects in their personal financial decisions. So let me give you a classic example. That is a, is a no, no, it's a watch out. Don't do this. Be careful thing. If I have somebody who's living on their own. Okay. And they've reached their seventies. They're feeling a little bit alone. A natural tendency to want to do is to add a family member onto their financial accounts. It just feels more like a team, right? They are kind of feel like, oh, I don't want to own the house by myself. I don't want to own these investment accounts by myself. I'd rather put somebody else on here with me so I'm feeling like I've got someone. The difficulty of that decision is that when you add someone to an account, you feel like all you've done is just a piece of paperwork change. But what you've really done is you've given half of that asset to that other family member or friend. And the implications of doing that can be large. Uh, Let's say that I've lived in my house for 40 years. I bought it for uh, $50,000 and it's now worth $800,000. Let's just say it's a huge amount of gain, all right? In the United States, I can get a $250,000 exclusion on selling that house and everything else I owe taxes on. However, if I hold that house until my death, and I'm owning it by myself at my death, the entire asset receives a step-up in basis, and my inheritors, my heirs, whoever I have chosen, do not have to pay any taxes on the gain that the house has experienced. Same thing with an investment account. i own an investment account. It has Coca-Cola stock that my dad gave to me in the 1960s. It's, it's appreciated a huge amount. Notice this is not me. I would love that I have Coca-Cola stock from 1960s. <laughs> But let's say, all right, I decide to add my child as a half owner of that coach stock. Well, what happens now? I die, only half the asset gets a step up in basis. The other half, the half owned by my child, they have to now dig back to the 1960s and figure out what my dad paid for it. So there's a big problem in adding someone to an account that you think would not be there. You kind of feel like you're just, you know, not feeling so alone. So let me tell you how to make make a change there. Very simple change. Instead of adding a person to your account, add what's called a transfer on death provision. All right. If that's the person you want to inherit your asset and you just think it would be easier, then just add a transfer on death provision to the account if it's an investment account. And, and, and in most states, you can add a transfer on death provision to a house too. So what you're doing is you're saying, I've already predetermined who's going to get this at my death. It doesn't go through my will. It doesn't go through the courts. But the big benefit is that the full asset gets the step-up in basis because I was the only owner of it. That can make a huge difference uh, in situations of somebody contemplating adding an account owner versus adding a transfer on death provision.
0: So in other words, when the one passes, they get a, a quote, step-up in value. Let's say that their value was X when they bought it. But now it's on steroids, and it's x plus, 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 plus. Do people fully understand um, the dynamics of that, especially our audience, uh, you know, money and the thrift and and the like?
1: Yeah, this is a hugely misunderstood principle in this. Well, just not known about principle, I'll say the step up in basis laws are obscure, it just feels like I, I have no idea what happens tax wise when I die. And Oftentimes they'll, they'll hear, well, the estate tax is only paid by people who have estates of $13 million or more, and that's not me. So I guess I have nothing I need to worry about from an estate planning perspective. And that's just not the case. This this step up in basis idea, idea immediately introduces the fact, hey, I need a professional looking this over, or at least I need to be well-educated. I need to get myself educated on this because I need to make sure I if, if I'm adding An owner to an account, I understand the implications of that from a tax perspective, because the capital gains tax in the United States is starts at 15%, but it can go as high as 23.8% at the federal level. And then all capital gains tend to be taxed at the state level as just regular income. There's no advantage on that tax either. So we can have something where you've exposed a ton of growth to 25 or 30% of gains tax that didn't need to be if it was just titled properly. OK.
0: OK. Now, when we're talking about that, we're talking to an audience that probably has thrift accounts, TSP accounts. Yeah, uh, this is a good question. So, so how
1: does that affect, right? If I've got an IRA, if I've got a Roth IRA, if I've got a TSP, a 401k. Well, you can't add an owner to those anyway. Right. That's a surprise some people come up with when they try They think, well, I'd I'd like to own that with someone else. All of those accounts are individually owned and incapable of being owned by two people, number one. And number two, you can't even transfer them into a trust. If we get into the nitty gritty of estate planning, you're thinking of using a revocable trust, that asset can't be, the account type cannot be used as the titling for an IRA or TSP. So what's gonna to happen to those from a tax perspective when you pass away? The number one thing to remember is if it's tax deferred now, if it's sitting in a traditional IRA or a traditional TSP, The income taxes do not go away at my death. They are paid by my heirs. So if somebody has multiple account types and they're thinking of leaving money to charity and they're thinking of leaving money to family, it would be best to structure their estate so that the IRA or the TSP is routing towards charity and the taxable accounts, the house, other assets are being routed to family because the charity doesn't have to pay income tax anyway so so but but remember if you die and the t- you have a traditional tsp your heirs are going to have to inherit that pre-tax they'll have to take money out and pay it at their tax rate and they will have 10 years to distribute the entire amount from those accounts there's a real you know less lesser known wrinkle to tsp as well that i'm just going to bring up as a thumbnail listeners can re-listen to this if they want to get into the details of it but when you hold a TSP and you become a beneficiary, all right, I was the federal employee, my spouse inherits my TSP. That's not a problem. But if my spouse leaves the assets in TSP, and then they pass away, the children must distribute all assets in one year. And that's a unique provision in TSP that does not apply to IRAs, it does not apply to 401ks. So oftentimes, if I'm working with a couple, one of the spouses, the federal employee passes away, the surviving spouse gets the TSP. One of the top priorities becomes move that into an IRA, because we want to pr- preserve as good of tax provisions for my heirs as I can. And I'd rather distribute it in ten than distribute it in one.
0: That's powerful. How many people get that?
1: Not many. That is that is a, that are, when I do seminars. Very few, very few heads just knowingly nod at that one. There's a lot of wide eyes, right?
0: Well, I mean, but that that's not good, but it's good because now you have a remedy. Uh, that's right. This is- it's a
1: very simple remedy. Move it out of the TSP. And I know people are not inclined to do that, and I get that. The TSP is an excellent retirement savings vehicle. It runs into some problems in the distribution stage, right? And and this is one of the biggest. So, so you just want to be mindful of that. It could be better to move that into an IRA. If, if that's a, a primary concern of yours. Could
0: you do could you do that one more time? Because you're very clear, but I'd imagine people getting uh, hand-tired taking notes. Because, sure. Very profound.
1: Yeah, so let me run through this one more time. I was the federal employee, and I am in my 60s, and I pass away. My wife can receive the TSP as a beneficiary, she was my primary beneficiary, she receives my TSP and now she is a TSP uh, in the form of a beneficiary account. Right now, my wife can hold that in the TSP as long as she wants as a spouse, right? She can wait until her required distribution age she start taking money out. But if my spouse passes away holding that beneficiary TSP account, her heirs receive those assets the year that she passes away, they must pay income taxes on the entire distribution. So for one of the 50,000 or so TSP millionaires on this call, those, especially those probably want to have their antennas up. If they just have one or two kids, you can be in a situation where a child can have to pay 500,000 income taxes on 500,000 or a million dollars of income in a single year. The easy remedy is move it out of TSP. Not necessarily if you're the worker, both of you are still alive, probably not as big a deal. But if you are the beneficiary TSP owner, you're the second, to, you know, you received it from your spouse who was a federal employee and they passed away. Get that out of the TSP into an IRA to make it so that kids can distribute over 10 years instead of one year.
0: You know, let's say I'm listening to this, which I am. And I say to myself, I'm going to forget this. in about. I've already forgotten most of it, but I'm going to forget it. How does somebody get in contact with you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, they can Google me. Joel Kundik. My last name is not that easy, but it's C-U-N-D-I-C-K. I I work at Savant Wealth Management, and they can just Google me, and they'll find all my contact information there. Savant is S-A-V-A-N-T.
0: Thank you. Andrew says it's time for a break. So why don't we take a break, and we'll come back, and uh, uh, we'll let let the um, uh, spot talk about what Nitp can do for the listeners. Who do you trust
1: when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com, that's nitpinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars.
2: Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career? Or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar
0: all righty welcome back to the final leg of today's show joel Kundick, certified financial planner has been um tutoring us on all the things we should know but maybe don't so uh, <laughs> so joel again how does somebody get in contact with you uh they can reach out
1: to me uh jay Kundick at savant uh, com. there or, or they can just look for my company site so uh www.savantwealth.com and that and they can find me on there
0: very good so we got uh, what do we got andrew 18 minutes 18 minutes good. andrew the ever-efficient engineer will, will guide us smoothly into the uh, sunset anyway back to you yeah
1: well i think this is a natural time to turn to i don't want to have false advertising here because we've talked a lot about stress tests and what if you know let's cons- consider the what ifs but i also said we were going to talk about hey what if this has happened to you so we have may have some listeners right now who are in a situation where they have recently lost a spouse or a parent or other loved one and they're wondering what do i need to do first so let's go through a punch list of what needs to be done right away and maybe what doesn't need to be focused on as quickly right away i want to make sure i gather my financial accounts in one place. I gather my debts together in one place. I uh, get multiple copies of the death certificate. And I submit insurance claims. That's my immediate pump, punch list. Gather financial statements, gather debts. I didn't say pay debts. There, there, there's an important uh, differentiation I'll make in a second here. Gather financial assets, gather uh, uh, debt statements get multiple copies of the death certificate. And when I say multiple, I'm saying like eight to 10, I'm not saying like get two. We have moved into a day and age where death certificates often can be scanned to a a financial provider to to get the information you need, but you'll wanna have multiple copies. Who gets you that? That's gonna be the funeral home that's gonna be responsible for coordinating, getting you the death death certificates, okay? But we, we get financial statements, debt statements, death certificates, and then we need to submit insurance claims. And because the process of submitting insurance claims can take some time and we want to start the the clock on that as soon as possible to make sure you get the distribution as early as possible. Because one of the biggest issues of when you've lost a spouse is liquidity, feeling like you have enough cash to make it, right? Through the first initial months. So we said before, if you're doing a stress test in advance, get some money in a bank account, that is not touched and is just there if something happens to one of you. But if we're in the situation now where it's happened, hopefully we have some money in a bank account already. If we don't feel like we have enough, get the insurance claim submitted right away so that there is liquidity coming in to help you out.
0: Does not every not everybody's married. So uh, we have single individuals. It's clear the responsibility uh, passes to them. Uh, But what? uh, what do you find that they use potentially then for the backup if it's not a spouse brother sister
1: i mean it often tends to be an adult child if they were married at one point right if they are single it tends to be a a close friend right and 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 what i want to make sure you do in the estate planning process there is that you keep those documents updated because those things can change you could have been designating a friend because they lived in the same neighborhood as you. And 10 years later, after you wrote the documents, that friend is now living in California, right? And they're not near as convenient to be able to handle an estate process as they were before. You want them to have at least three individuals named as your executor, a primary, a secondary, and a third, okay? And you want to keep that document updated. If something happens where one of those people is now no longer the person you want involved for whatever reason, you do an update. It doesn't have to be a full will update. It's called a codicil. So you go back to the estate attorney who drafted the documents for you say, hey, I just want to change in my executor. The estate attorney can do a very simple one page document that says, hey, the, the the paragraph that says who the executors are, we're changing it to say this, and you're done. So if you're on doing this on your own you and you do not have a family member that you feel comfortable being involved in this process, you know, use a, a close friend make sure they understand that they are your executor and that they're comfortable taking on that role and make sure you have the important conversations that with them, that we were just talking about, anybody, parent, child, spouse should be having with the person who might be taking over. Where is everything to make it as easy as possible for them to step into that role.
0: All right. You've been crystal clear with this, but how many, how often, or is it often where you get kickbacks and people just don't want to face it?
1: Oh, all the time. I have a dear, dear family member who I've been the financial advisor for for a number of of years and have been trying to convince them to do a will for many years. And they just won't do it. And they're not alone, all right? There's many people I work with who the act of either doing a will or updating a set of estate documents is just the last thing they want to do. I do suspect a lot of this is emotional. We do not want to think about dying. It is, it's, it's not where we want our focus to be. But this is one of those things where if you don't have a current set of documents, if you're listening to this and you think, yeah, man, it's been 15, 20 years since I looked at that. I know I should look at it, but I just don't want to. Hey, this summer, pull it out, look at it, and decide whether changes need to be made. If you don't have a set of documents at all, get a set in place. The, the, the thing I typically tell my clients is, the worst decision you're going to make in the set of documents you create is probably going to be better than the best decision the state's going to make on your behalf. And that's what what, you, what the situation you're in if you die and you don't have anybody designated, it's now up to the state to make those decisions for you. And is that really something you want the state deciding? I, I, I personally do not. So we want to make sure we have a set of documents. it stays relevant and current. You know I, I generally say that once every five to ten years is probably enough to look at things unless you know something substantial has changed. If you know one of your executors is deceased, then you should update your executors and rename somebody who was on that list. Or if you know, I no longer want to leave money to that person, don't delay making a change to your estate plan because you need to have this estate plan correctly express what you want to happen. I worked with a client last year. They were in the process of getting a divorce. They had not made a change to their estate plan to name their sibling uh, the half heir of their estate. They died. The sibling now knew that they were supposed to be a half beneficiary of the estate. And now they're coming to the the surviving spouse and saying, hey, I get half the estate, right? Because that's what he wanted. Well, guess what? Stating that you wanted something is not enough in any court of law. Every court of law is going to handle that According to the executed will that was in place at the time somebody passed away. So if you think if if you're sure you want to make a change to your plan, that should be the day you make a change to your plan.
0: Your your tutelage here is terrific, um, but how many people come to you after hearing this? Maybe you on the radio, maybe at a webinar, or going, you know going on your own doing seminars and webinars. Um, do you find they're better prepared if they've had that? And I'm not trying to uh, stroke up business for NITP to uh, to do the seminars, but it would be anybody. Um, what do you find with that? People begrudgingly come in, or people say this was you know this was good, and other people just didn't, they don't necessarily want to share share it, and they don't want to share it with family members.
1: No, I find the the process of hearing about finances is a strongly motivating factor. In getting people to take action on finances. This is something that, yes, you hear, you hear, you hear in like somebody talking on the radio, and then you go to a presentation where they're talking about you. And you tend to, I've noticed that people in, in those situations tend to be motivated to make some actual changes. And that's one of the reasons why I like doing seminars on an ongoing basis, because I want to get the outreach as broad as possible to people who need to make changes to their financial life. And I know it's just not going to happen with everybody coming and sitting across the desk for me.
0: Well, th- that's hundred percent accurate. Oh, how long do you find that the, the folks that, you know, are a little bit holding back, not begrudgingly, they're just holding back because they're in an area they're not really conversing on. And now we have to, hand our hard-earned assets to somebody else is there a, um, a learning curve there and what would you suggest you know if somebody was just to look at a book before coming to see you not a not a huge book but you know uh a yeah skinny
1: no book. i can i absolutely so let, let me run a, recommend a couple of books and, and then we're going to ask this question do i need pro- professional advice because that's a big question all right and some it's. An important to consider. And I'm not the the one out there saying, yes, everybody needs professional advice. Okay. So two books, Uh, if you're talking about general financial planning, I really like the one page financial plan. It's a book written by Carl Richards, pretty easy name, Carl Richards, the one page financial plan. Great book, walks you through a lot of the basics of just getting yourself conversant on finances. Then if we're more interested on kind of investments specifically, there's a great book called Odds On, like like the gambling term, Odds On uh, by Matt Hall. Two excellent books about getting you some information. Both the, the, the Odds On book is about more investment specific, but the one page financial plan is more broad to kind of get you up to speed on all aspects financially. So I understand people tend to be skeptical about do I need professional advice or not. Uh, So let me tell you about the situations that I I think people benefit most from professional advice, especially in scenarios where one spouse is highly conversant financially and the other spouse doesn't understand anything of it and doesn't want to. That can be a very important situation where particularly when you get into your retirement years, it would be good to engage a professional if only to introduce the non-financial spouse to someone who could assist them if they found themselves in the situation of being alone. So that, that certainly. Another situation though in which I advise professional advice is when there's disagreement between two spouses. We can't come to a conclusion about what we're supposed to do. There's diverging desires. Oftentimes that tends to be because of unequal information or very different goals, all right? So either someone knows a lot more than the other or they have very different goals or, or risk tolerances then it can be really good to have a third party step into this conversation and give some objective advice that they are not involved in all of the emotional elements of what's been being discussed. It's good to engage if you do with a fiduciary. The fiduciary word just means someone who is required to act in your best interest above your own, okay? So yeah, I think that can be very helpful. It's not for everybody. If we have two spouses that are both financially conversant, they've read up on investments, they're interested in it, They tend to be long-term investors, and they've got a strategy. They've been using it for years, and it works. I'm not advocating breaking up a good thing. If you know you're in the kind of situation where you're unequally weighted on on advice or or decision-making, or if you know that one person really doesn't understand anything of this, those can be two good situations. The other is if you went, went through in 2020, and when everything dropped, you sold, right? If if you've gone through a major market correction and you've sold all your investments, that is a good indicator. You probably need to sit down with somebody professionally because that is the number one driver of investors making less than investments, right? Is the fact that we sell at precisely the wrong time because we're emotional beings,
0: Okay. Here's a, here's a question we got. Am I responsible for my spouse's debts? I think
1: that's a, that's a critical question. Because you you can guarantee that the creditor is going to say to you, yes, right? And they're not going to say it specifically because it would be a lie, right? But they are going to try and make you feel responsible for someone else's debt that is not your own. I said, gather the debts in one place. Certainly, if your name was on the debt, yes, you're going to need to pay the debt. If your name was not on the debt, only your spouse's name was on the debt, or you have lost a parent and it was only your parent's name that was on the debt. You need to talk to an attorney in your state before you start writing checks. You're not gonna get that money back if you've written the check. Forgoing one month of interest, having to go, go in arrears by one month or two months is worth it to get the right answer to know if you owe that money or you don't owe that money. Because the laws in the United States are very clear and they differ from state to state on who owes what. And you need to engage with a professional because you do not want to write a check where you do not need to, where an, a, a debt that was your spouse's ended with your spouse's death. I'll give you a classic example. And I can say this because it's true at, at all levels. Student loans are not owed by anyone except the person that the, the student loan was in their name. So they expire at the death of the person who was who, who, had, who was named that student loan was in so if you go and you look and i see oh that they had a ten thousand dollar balance on a student loan i'm I'm just going to write a quick check to pay that off you've just made a ten thousand dollar payment that you were not responsible for no one can make you responsible for that okay so that's a classic example of things that you want to get right now now we should look at that in the midst of all that we should look at probate how does the probate process process work because a lot of people think okay Yeah, we have to go to an attorney and we sit around a big oak table and we all dress up and we hear the reading of the will. This is not how assets transfer in the United States. All right. Assets transfer by titling and by beneficiary far more often than they transfer by will. So if I owned a house jointly with my spouse, they get the house if I die. If I owned an investment account or a bank account with my spouse, they get the account when I die. We don't need to look to a will. We don't need to go through a probate process. It transfers immediately. That's because of the titling loss. All right. If I have an IRA or a TSP or or a life insurance policy that that, uh, I have stated beneficiaries of, those assets will transfer by beneficiary. They will not transfer by will. Another important thing to remember, if you got divorced and you think you took your spouse off everything because you changed your will, careful, you may not have taken your ex-spouse off of everything and that would be a very rude awakening particularly if you get remarried right and that new spouse it does not get the asset but the ex-spouse does because you do go through and look properly who are my beneficiaries and who do i have uh, assets titled together with Those i am told
0: everything. i am told we have what 45 seconds left andrew andrew says yes so uh all
1: right if we have 45 seconds left let me talk about what i think is actually the most important thing if you've lost a a spouse and it's to give yourself time I talked about a few things that should be taken care of right away but the biggest mistakes I see people make when they've lost a loved one is making important decisions with a sense of urgency like I have to do this now you're going to have stress and anxiety like you haven't had before you're going to grieve and your grief is going to be different than anybody else's kind of grief you need to give yourself space you need to find ways to nourish yourself to do the things you love to get up to eat well And you need to decide, I don't need to decide everything right now. Give myself time, talk to close family members, talk to professionals I trust.
0: We need 15 seconds for your contact point.
1: Sure. Your contact information that people can reach out to me anytime. if They feel like they didn't have questions answered on here. Jay Kundik, C-U-N-D-I-C-K at savantwealth.com. They can also call me at 703-288-0500.
0: Thank you, Joel. Outstanding. Andrew, thank you for a flawless presentation, both of us. Pleasure
1: as always, Bob.
0: Let's do it again soon. Take good care. And folks, thanks for listening. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WAPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.